0: Off we are going. It is September the 16th, lecture discussion number 36 on the book of Joel. And if you have missed most of the lectures of August and September because of the greatest September weather in Alaskan history, recorded history, it's been amazing. I I will tell you, I've been up here for almost all of my life. There was a sojourn to Hawaii, pretending I was being educated. Uh, But uh, I've never seen a September do this, so it's been astonishing, and I don't blame anybody for taking advantage of it. Uh, So if that has been where you are, then you might be in need, not necessarily the applicable word here, of a synopsis of where we've been, and maybe figure from that where we're going. And it'll be nothing comprehensive, mostly just a friendly reminder of the issues at the forefront. So I should make the obligatory list because everybody loves lists. And first in the inventory, but not necessarily first in importance, though it may be so, is this mystery that we are in with regard to the grave clothes. So if you wish to think of it, the mystery are the mysteries of the grave clothes. Yes. These are the grave clothes of Christ. I'm going to run out of board. Not any grave clothes, but the grave clothes of Christ. Now, if you've been in this study for any length of time, you'll know that everything connects to Christ. There are also the linen wrappings, uh, if you wish to think of them that way. And inside this, of course, is the face cloth of Christ. So all of these things... Or our first attempt, if you will, at the mystery that surrounds them. And again, to let me repeat that, if you find grave clothes in the Bible, they're going to connect to Christ. That is how he has written his word. And. All of those elements somehow, if you remember, they prove that he resurrected himself. John 3.19. Important to know that Christ resurrected himself. The Father resurrected Christ. The Holy Spirit resurrected Christ. The Triune Godhead resurrected Christ. That's what it would take being the size and the infinity that is the Godhood and that is Christ himself. But also, John 3.19, he resurrected himself. If you don't have that understanding, you have a tendency to suborn or suborn coordinate Christ from the Father and the Holy Spirit, which is, what do we call that word? Heresy. You don't want to find yourself in that position, again, though it is so common. Apostle John, seeing the linen wrappings, the face cloth, and the totality of the grave clothes of Christ, the folded face cloth, I have the folded position. You'll find other positions. I'll talk about that in a minute or maybe in a half hour. We'll see how it goes. From looking at the linen wrappings and the folded face cloth, John the Apostle concluded that Christ had resurrected. And the question has become, how did he do that? Secondly, we are currently or concurrently, be more accurate, while we're doing this, We're trying to figure out uh, the sign of Jonah and how it is that the sign of Jonah fits into the creation seven or the first seven days of creation because it does. It also fits into the crucifixion week that we should expect because... Everything fits into the first seven. All sevens return to the creation seven. And then finally, or not finally, but for today, we have the resting on the Sabbath. The Great Sabbath rest, which of course also includes the Noadic or the the Noadic Ark, not to be confused with the Mosaic Ark. Are the Ark of the Testimony? So the resting of the Ark of Noah, the resting of God on the Sabbath. How these connect as well, and um, and then uh, establishing a definition of the word rest as God applies it to Himself. As when Christ says He's resting, uh, what does He mean? What is He resting from? Is it stoppage? Is it waiting? What is he stopping from? What is he waiting for? All those questions will pour out. And again, how does it fit into the Sabbath of the crucifixion week? So, sign of Jonah, we're going to get that into the crucifixion week. We have to get the resting of the Sabbath in um, Exodus into the crucifixion week. And we're we're battling the grave clothes of Christ. So, that is uh, um, where we have been primarily the last few weeks These are the three subjects that we find ourselves confronting primarily. And there are others, but for now, as you know, um, uh, there are a lot of others. But today I'm attempting to limit the lecture to these three on the board. And we'll see how that goes. Uh, As you know, my track record, not so good here, right? I will, I've been known to chase rabbits. It's a character flaw, some would say. The available evidence of my so-called career suggests the likelihood of a diversion into the weeds is uh, certain. So though this is my plan today, I'm trying to prepare you for the inevitable. Because I've written the inevitable, so I know it's there. <laughs> and in my defense... Uh, um some of you uh, purposely bring metaphor metaphorical rabbits uh, to the service and you loose them and, and you do it on purpose and uh you want me to know about it and what's a professional religious person to do with this well yeah i got to i got to gleefully run after the rabbits i mean that's what we do so but this is a play And here's where we're at. So let's go back first. Let's start first with these grave clothes and the face cloth of Christ. And last Sunday, lecture number 35, I suggested that the folded face cloth was of particular importance. It's of great significance. Essentially... The Apostle John recognized its relationship to the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. The folded face cloth. Face cloth has been separated, if you will, divided from what? The grave clothes, which are for what? The face cloth is for the face and the grave clothes are for the? Body, So the face has been separated from the body. John looked at this division, this separation, and he recognized its relationship to the body resurrection of Jesus Christ. The folded face cloth set aside, separated from the body linen strips, and that provided axiomatic evidence of the resurrection. These are evidences left by God himself, and John got it. How long did it take? I mean, Peter's in there too, right? And hopefully you have noticed the face-body clue that I just gave you, in case you think uh, surreptitiously placed there. Okay, not exactly subtle. I wasn't trying to be subtle. There's a reason that God separated the face from the body. And John figured it out. As is the contemporary custom... While I ask questions, like this last one I just did, in this case, about the meanings of the grave clothes of Christ, especially in light of Psalm 1610. Psalm 1610, again, is the foundational verse that tells us that Christ's body could not. Go into decay. It cannot be corrupted. Acts 2.27 says the same thing. Repeat Psalm 16.10. His body cannot have corruption. So there's no need for a face cloth or a linen wrapping seemingly. But there is a need because Christ did it. So what is the need of the face cloth and the linen wrappings um, if it's not to protect the smell of the body? Because there cannot be any smell from his body and the fact that his body cannot corrupt. His body, again, it's impossible for his body to, to decay. So it is for us to figure this out. And while I ask these kinds of questions, everyone, not everyone, it's not fair, but a lot of you, I concede um, that I don't have one of these things, these $1,500 phones. I don't have one. I don't have any of these, a cell phone. I run away from them. They're poisonous. What, what I call them, as you know an Antichrist tracking device. I did it from the very first day I saw one. I said, Oh, how handy for the Antichrist for you to have a phone. Once you embed it on your forehead, well probably your right hand. That might be inconvenient, but somebody will do it. Fifteen hundred bucks? I mean you've got to be kidding me. I don't get it. And what's the monthly fee for these things? Go ahead. Confess Hundred dollars? Oh, I wish, huh? Oh, a mackerel, honey, child. But I know everybody's got them, and the penalty fees and the user fees, and and you know some guy stands outside your house trying to collect everything you owe him. And I've already got too many of those people. Anyway, whenever I ask these kind of questions. Oh, and by the way, I've not. I have a cell phone. Oh, golly. Oh, you just fixed it. Oh, that is so terrible. You are, at least. (laughs) Did you catch it first? Okay, well, then she gets the reward then. Sorry, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, they stole that from me. I had sorry, fake sorry for 20 years ask anybody. Now all of a sudden they got it. And you know I should be rewarded financially for that. I don't have my words insurance on. Doggone it. Huh? I could have a phone. That's right. If I just had what's due me. I don't have a phone, as you all have figured out. And uh, so that means I've never played Angry Fish or what's the other one, farm management games. It just blows my mind the amount of time people will spend on those kinds of things. But I am aware that you, all you guys, and the vast Internet audience, hi, you guys, you search, when I ask questions, the digital realm for answers. And that's perfectly fine. As you know, if it's on the Internet, it must be true. No one lies on booktube face, not a single person. So when you find it, you might or might not have the answer, just saying. With this in mind, a couple of you have asked me about this particular view that you asked me last week. And so I thought I'd go ahead and destroy it today, just for the fun. I've given it away, aren't I? It's the sentimental, sappy, mushy explanation that is prevalent, if not ubiquitous, universal um, on the Internet. It, and it comes from, originally perhaps not, but it comes now from what I call the weeping Christian community. Not to be confused with the skeptic Christian community. Because we really are now in two camps. The weepy Christians outnumber The skeptic Christians, thousands to one. They're they're a legion. The Acts 17.11 Christians are few. Spend time and read what the Acts 17.11 Christians say. They are honored in Scripture because of what they are doing. And that is how we are to do it. Which means that we're probably not, right? But I digress on this subject. Let's just back up a second. The weepers have spread on the Internet and all throughout the traditions of the church. I have books that explain this particular position. And it's almost relentless that the solution to the grave clothes is a long-held Jewish tradition. It goes back centuries And that uh, the explanation or the solution, if you will, the answer, the Jewish master and his servant at a meal is what they tell you this is about. The weepy proclaim that in the Jewish households, again for centuries, there is a folded napkin. Let me repeat that. Napkin. You will have translations that say that this was a napkin in the grave clothes. And it is a meal napkin, and and it and this folded napkin. The purpose of it is to indicate it's indicative of an unfinished meal. In other words, the servant would set out the meal. That's his job. He's going to come and set out the meal. Once he set out the meal, then he backs off. And he, they will say that he hides in a place where the master can't see him. And the master would come in and there's the meal and there's all of the stuff. And he will sit down and eat the meal. And if the master finishes, then he will discard the napkin. But if the master wishes to interrupt the meal because there's something he has to do before he can finish the meal, and in other words, he's going to leave the table and come back to the meal, then he would fold the napkin, signifying that he intended to return. And they say, the weepers, and they weep while they say this, that since Christ folded the napkin, he was proclaiming, his second coming, his return. This is evidence of his return. This is the hidden meaning, they say. Hooray, huzzah, we blah, blah, blah. And you may have noticed that I have taken great, uh, gone to great lengths, taken great care to conceal my opinion of this opinion. <laughs> uh, you might have noticed my disrespect besides the offer of the obvious there is no napkin it's not a napkin it's a face cloth so right off the bat you read a translation and never studied enough to find out what it was it's a burial face cloth why would he need a meal <laughs> This logically, first obvious question, why does Christ take a meal napkin into a grave tomb? Did Nicodemus say, well, maybe he'll get up and eat in the middle. I'll give him a napkin. It's a burial face cloth. It's not a table napkin. Additionally, there is no such Jewish custom, tradition, no oral, no historical account or reference at all. None. There is no master, no servant, no meal. Nothing. Oops. Sorry, not really, fake sorry. Other than that, the story makes perfect sense. And they love it, and it 's everywhere you 'll buy books that have it it 's all it 's everywhere. I get told this all the time. Well, you know the meaning of this. Well, I know that you don 't know but again it 's valuable in one sense. I was talking to the other daniel it 's valuable to know the positions that everybody has as you go through your life because you will find positions that question yours, and it's important to know what they are. If nothing else, they get you to be resolute in yours. Or if yours is incorrect and they make a good point, then it is important to, to uh, change and be more honorable to Christ. Find that which is the most honoring to Christ. That's the one that is going to be the most correct. So let's put it into a definitive phrasing that this story about the master and the servant and the napkin and the meal and the interruption. um, To put it in a single word, it's a word that rhymes with crapola. So you'll figure that out. I suspect by any part of the phrase is the phrase. It's how the rule works. The thought Thanking, that's right, the intention, of the, the deep yearning of the heart. <sighs> I suspect this story that makes people cry is an intentional fraud. And by that I, I mean it's concocted by those who wish to portray the church as stupid or those who wish to keep the church stupid. Um, take your pick, that ends up being the same. And we need... No assistance. Uh, No such assistance, unfortunately. Okay, as you research the grave clothes of Christ, you will find quite a few examples. Not as bad as that one. I put that one out because it's probably the worst one. But there are many that are just as unthoughtful and just as indefensible. So application of word of the day while you're on your phone. Google is not your friend. The Internet lies to you. And also beware of the consensus, especially if it is so simplistic. Just because there's a logical flaws that you should be familiar with or taught in every philosophy class. Just because a large number of people or even experts believe something doesn't mean the reasoning is is valid. That is appealing to the masses or appealing to the expert. It is a logical flaw, a logical uh, our dysfunctional argument. So beware of the consensus, because how are we described? We're sheep, right? Over the cliff we go with dingleberries and mucus. And so uh, you see something that is as simple as this, and and the uh, reaction is not um, Acts 17.11, but the Acts... The act, The response is to be uh, affected by it, then be suspicious of the intent. This is Jesus God who folded the face cloth, the burial face cloth. He's dead. It's not a napkin. Why did he do it? God did this. John the Apostle knew almost instantly it was proof of the resurrection. How simple do you think this is going to be? It is not Evidence of his second coming. It is. It applies to his resurrection. The face cloth, again, is divided. It's not lying. It's separated from the body linens. And the face cloth is folded in a particular way. Some say it's twisted, intertwined. Some say it's rolled up like a scroll. Again, John looks at it and goes, resurrection. He doesn't go, Timmy A burrito. So that's why I have the folded position. Something about how he folded this. John recognized what it meant. What is God saying? What is he teaching with this? And again, I prefer the folded position. And I hope my reasonings as they come forward over the weeks will bear up. Again, John saw it when resurrection. Peter saw it. What did he do? Okay, we both run to the tomb, Peter and John. I should insert here, some people think Lazarus is the other disciple. I don't have that view. I think it's obviously that it is John. We'll get to that as the weeks go by, too. There's a reason they have Lazarus, um, because Lazarus is part of this process. He and Christ both have grave clothes. We covered that last week with Adam as well. So I have Peter. And John, John is first to the tomb, right? Peter, John's faster than Peter. John's first to the tomb, but Peter is first to go into the tomb. Do you think that's an incidental detail put in Scripture by accident? Please erase that process. This is the word of God. Why did Peter go in first, John go in second? Both of them look at the grave clothes. Peter does not recognize the meaning. John does. Why? Why is it that it seems that Peter is put in a bad light? It's not the only time in scripture that Peter is put in a bad light. How many times has Peter put in a bad light in the gospel accounts? He wants to cut people in pieces and God has to put ears back on them, right? Uh, He's going under the water, has to be saved. He doesn't know that Christ is omniscient God, the end of the uh, gospel of John. The rooster, of course, crows at him because he's denying Christ. How's Peter doing? Why is, why why are the remember, John specifically is picking out things that prove what? What's the purpose of the, the gospel of John? Prove that Christ is God. And this is something. Peter, getting to the tomb second, but going in first. John getting to the tomb first, but going in second. Peter, not knowing what, it, what any of the folded, what the folded face cloth meant, or the grave clothes, had no idea. Confused. John knew immediately. That somehow proves the resurrection and proves the deity of Christ. But Peter is portrayed in a bad light, it seems. Why did the Holy Spirit and John include this? Okay, and in order to answer all of that, we've got to collect more information. So we have a pursuit now to collect more information. Elements, additional pieces, the attempt to take what's now a small picture and make it into a bigger picture. Keep in mind, this is the face cloth for who? Who is the face cloth for? It's for God. It is for God's face. This is the face cloth for the face of God. What should you do now? Run through the Bible and find the face of God. Find people that confront the face of God. Does God hide His face? Why? It's, again, unlikely, this detail, this face cloth for the face of God. Immediately, most of you, and I can see your mouth, each other. It's fantastic to do that, to watch you do it. It's exactly what I'm trying to make you do. You're going to Moses, aren't you, in the face of of God. You're going up the mountain where you see the feet, but not the face. Well, that has something to do with the resurrection and the face cloth, burial cloth of Christ. Again, these are not extrinsic Extrinsic they're not random details they are purposed and they have great significance and I'm obviously proposing the contrast of John and Peter to be vital to this story and I believe that it is as well as the women too their role in Nicodemus and Joseph all of those fit together and give you more information so that you can draw conclusions that are thoughtful that are studied that are Act 1711 and do not come from Google or Hollywood. Pretty much is the same thing now. They'll be after me soon. Let's go after the guy with... uh, (laughs) Never mind. They're not going to find me. Hmm? That's right. You know that right now the Internet is giving information as to your location. Even if the phone is turned off. don't know what to say to you they they have you <laughs> uh, they know where I am too because Lori has one of these volunteers. Right? <sighs> I'm what's called collateral damage okay <laughs> we gotta go get more stuff as it so happens um, we have a gentleman Pastor Sherman from Oklahoma and he wishes for me. Hi, Pastor Sermon, I'm glad to see you. I hope you're doing well. Uh, he wishes for me to include Matthew 12:22 through 24, and Mark 9:17 through 29, and Luke 8:30 30 through 31. He doesn't necessarily know yet that that's what he wants me to do, but that is what he wants me to do. And he is wise to want these passages um, admitted to this discussion. He's absolutely right. He sent a question to Dave. And uh, and Pastor Sherman uh, is right on track as I would expect him to be. So we have Matthew twelve twenty two through twenty four, Mark seven or nine seventeen through twenty nine, and Luke eight thirty and thirty one. So we'll go there right now. Let's read those. Obviously, there's more to it than just what I put on the board. You can read in front of it and behind it, and that always is important to do. But I'm just going to cherry pick these out for today because of the necessity to get this done in a timely manner, which I never accomplished, as you know. 1222, then one was brought to him who was demon possessed. Him is Christ. Somebody, Pharisees, bring to Christ a demon possessed, blind and mute man. And Christ healed him, and he healed him. So the blind and mute man both spoke and saw And all the multitudes were amazed, and they all said the same thing. Could this be the son of David? The son of David is a messianic title. Could this be the Messiah? Because he healed a blind, mute, demon-possessed guy. Can this be the Messiah? Now Mark 9. See how similar this is to the grave clone? How do they make the leap from healing a blind, mute, demon-possessed guy to the Messiah? Well, it was logical. That's how they did it. Then one of the, let me, uh, yeah, here we go. We'll start at verse 17. Then one of the crowd, he's in a multitude now, multitude is, is a great multitude is around Christ and his disciples. One of the crowd answered and said, oh, back up to verse 16, because that's very important. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? This is God asking a question. Who's God. Is he inside of time? Outside of time? <laughs> Is he omniscient? Mm-hmm. He asked the question. Consider that. Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute Spirit, Mute demon. And whatever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples. And a lot of people say, well, it's an epileptic fit. Because they don't notice, as the 1711 Acts people will, that it's mute. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. Of course they could not. There's no possibility they could. How do I know that? This is a mute. So I'm giving away the answers. He answered them and said, "O oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Of course, the disciples can't cast him out. It's a mute. And you should know that. And you should know that I'm the one that can do it. But you don't. I'm kind of providing commentary there that isn't in the text, obviously. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming at the mouth. In other words, they brought the son... To Christ, and when the son saw Christ, big problems. So Christ asked his father, who is Christ? God. Is he omniscient? Yes. Is he outside of time? Yes. He's asking a question. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, the father, from childhood. And often he, the spirit, has thrown him, the boy, into the fire and into the water to destroy him, the boy. But if you can do anything, have mercy, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, the father, if you can believe all things... If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. Why did he say that? Does he need to say it? He not need to say anything. This is God. Who's inside the boy? A demon. What's a demon? Fallen angel. When did it happen? Put it on your timeline. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him and he became dead. Now, your Bible says, as one dead, same thing. So that many said, He's dead. Is that a problem? But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind. This kind. can't even get my quotation marks right, but I did the best I could. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Now, your Bible might have, and fasting, but there is debate as to whether or not fasting is in the text. So you got that? Now we go to Luke 8.30-31. Once again, we have demons. Ah, Let me go, where should I start? Verse 28. A certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For he had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? Speaking to the demon. And the demons said legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. And then you have the herd of, of, of pigs. And they go into the pigs and they drown the pigs. So I have a conversation again from omniscient God to demons, where he is speaking aloud and he asks questions, saying, What is your name? Why would God ask the demon a question. Who's he saying it for? What's Christ doing here? Who's the intended audience, I guess? Now, we're going to begin with the easiest, if there were such a thing, which there isn't such a thing. There's only the seemingly easiest. Keep it always in mind that the word of God is infinite in all directions, which is another reason we know it is his word. And therefore, we should expect the task to be exhaustive. If it's otherwise, if it's simple for you, then expect it to be wrong. You went over too fast, you didn't pay attention, and you're wrong. That's okay. I hardly, you know, I look at the great lessons of my life. Where, where have they come from? Failure. How much failure have I had? Lots and lots of failure. I'm going to have some today and tomorrow, and I just go, "Wow, do I really need this lesson?" Apparently so, because I keep getting them. But the failures, I've, as you know, I struggled with softball this year. It really frustrated me because I it was something I was just naturally good at, and now all of a sudden it's gone. Uh, and it's been it was difficult for me, very discouraging. And I got a lot of joy out of being successful at softball. As I got older, I could still function fairly well, but obviously not as well as I could in my twenties. But I had a pretty good swing, and I thought I understood the swing really well. and I was positive I was you know there's nothing more I could learn than I had this real, this bad year. I only hit four or five really hard. Um, which is, uh, for me, not not good. But the more I, what did I do? I said, well, there's something I don't know about this softball swing. So, I tormented my lovely wife for months on end. Eventually, she got to the place where she knows more about the swing than I do, because I'm constantly saying, what's wrong with me? And we figured it out. And I don't know if... I always knew it because I can't remember very much about my youth. It was so long ago. Or if I just did it naturally because uh, it was an athletic thing and not, but I now know more about a softball swing than I've ever done. Same thing for the trumpet. I, what's the word I want? Um, Can't come up with a word that'll work. I'm not good at trumpet, but I know a lot about it. Because of the constant failure. It introduces failure. And I had a pretty good practice. Or actually lesson the other day. Where my trumpet teacher who's really gifted said. I don't like this note and I don't like that note. That was out of 25, 30 notes. Yeah, I'm really thrilled. The F and the A. So, point is, is that the failure has made me just question everything and has produced results for me. And that's why I say it's okay to be wrong about the Bible. That's really a good thing most of the time. Never be sure. If I had a dollar for everybody that told me I don't need to read the Bible anymore, I've read it through two or three times, I know everything that's in it. Wow, would I have a nice motor home. I'd have a phone in the motor home. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't. I'd attach it to the dog and turn him loose, just to see if Google could find him, which they could. Anyway, point being is that uh, being finding problems in the Bible, if you ever come across a verse, you've heard me say this thousands of times, where you go, the Bible is wrong here. That's wonderful, because you are an idiot, and it's good to know that. Look in the mirror and say, man, am I an idiot. But how am I an idiot? And, and when you go go that way, you find the answers, and it's really extraordinary. It's God's word. So <coughs> Matthew twelve twenty two. Let's go back there. That's where we're going to start. The predictable Pharisees, and they are nothing if not predictable. They are very predictable. They convene their usual committee, and has always devised a foolproof snare to entrap the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent Creator of time. That's their plan. Was well, going to work. We got him. What could go wrong with this, right? And this time they brought to him a demon possessed, blind, and mute guy. Remember, Christ says this kind. What kind is that? What kind is he talking about? He's talking about the mute guy. This is a mute. Very important. Let me write it here. Mute. This kind. Mute. This kind. And the Pharisees know what they're doing. They've done their research. They're not, they're not dumb. They're fools. There's a difference. And they're evil. And they're intentionally uh, evil. And they brought to Christ a demon-possessed, blind and mute man. And why did they do this? What were they expecting? What's the trap? And all. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. You see, you you, you saw this Jewish exorcism has quite a few facets to it. This is an exorcism. They wanted the rabbi to perform an exorcism, which he would do. But there are many aspects to it. Among those are music. You're supposed to have music when you do an exorcism. Why? The exorcist must be a truly pious rabbi. They're admitting that Christ is a truly pious rabbi. They go ahead and concede that, because they're going to bring him a mute guy that's demon-possessed. And typically, the the truly pious rabbi begins by purifying, him, purifying himself. Christ didn't do that. Now, you see how the snare comes? The, the purifying process for the rabbi is anointing oil and water. And it's a cleansing ritual. And then there are certain psalms that are invoked. And a shofar shofar is blown sometimes. There's sulfur smoke and there's candles and there's lamps. But the most powerful tool that the Jewish pious rabbi has to get this... Demon out of a human being, the one that is absolutely necessary in Jewish exorcism, is for the Jewish exorcist to extract in the beginning of the exorcism the name of the demon. That's why I read Luke 8.30. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? Does Jesus know his name? So why does he ask? most powerful tool... Is to get the name. And once you've got the name as, as, the, or, as the exorcist, once the exorcist has the name, he then has the advantage. And this begins this drawn out, very wearisome, exhausting event. And that's what the Pharisees expected. Is that what they got? No. That's a typical exorcism. But this one is with a mute a demon possessed, blind, and mute, it's impossible, for therefore, for the man's vocal structures to reveal the name of the demon. Therefore, the demon has the advantage. You can't learn his name. You can't go through the process now. And that's exactly the plan of the Pharisees. Jewish theologians taught for centuries that when the true Messiah came, the, pi- the pious rabbi, when he came... He alone would be able to cast out the demon. This kind is different because of the mute. And again, Jesus confirms this to be true at Mark 9:29. Let me read it again. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. What kind of prayer? Who's praying? You can't do it, apostles. Jesus asked him by saying, what is your name? Luke 8:30. Only the Messiah can do this. Why is it that only the Messiah can do this? Why is it that only the Messiah can cast a demon out of a mute? I doubt that the uh, Pharisees had any idea why this is so. If you follow the logic of it, the logic dictates that to be able to know the name of the demon who has taken steps, possessed a blind mute... And again, this is likely a soldier's because the soldiers would go into battle. They got captured by the Assyrians. They would take a, 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 a spoon, sharpened spoon, gouge their eyes out, cut their tongues off. Sometimes they would cut their arms off and they would send them back because they knew it took a lot of effort to keep that person uh, alive. And that would uh, allow them an advantage because you were going to dev- devote a tremendous amount of resources to these maimed people. So I have... Eyes and tongues removed by captors, soldier, and there's a demon. In order to learn the name of the demon, and get the advantage, if you will, the way they thought, you have to know the name, and only the Messiah would know the name. But they didn't know why only the Messiah would know the name. Why would the Messiah know the name of the demon? Because the Messiah is God. Jews never have figured that out. They still haven't figured that out. Who made the demon? Who named the demon? Who knows the demon? Obviously Christ did. That's a truth that Israel never conceived nor did Satan and certainly not nor did the, uh, the Pharisees. The Messiah rabbi is omniscient and the creator of the demon and that's what this testifies, that's what it, what it demonstrates. It's the greatest of all mysteries, the mystery of godliness, first Timothy 3:16. The nation Israel has yet to recognize the truth of First Timothy 3:16. The I am of Exodus 3:14, the I am that I am, that's Jesus Christ. They never have known that. They still don't know it. They're told it, they don't believe it. And of course, the great revival for Israel, Zechariah 12:10 through14, Joel 2:27 through32, Joel 3:18, where Israel, the promises given to Israel that God will redeem them, that promise that God's nation will be restored to him is still to come, but it's close. They're going to know that Jesus Christ is the pious rabbi, is the Messiah, who created the demon, who knows all the names. He named everybody, just like who in the Bible that's the type of this? Adam. Naming's important to God. Ask why. Naming the animals shows up here to naming the demons. God will restore Israel, Romans eleven twenty five 25 through 26. As the age is the season of the Gentiles ends. The rebirth of Israel arrives. That's called the sign of the nation of Israel, something that became uh, current to us in 1949. Okay, Mark 9, 17 through 29. Jesus, again, acknowledges the Jewish exorcism system or process, this kind. What kind is this? A demon, unclean spirit that has control of a mute that cannot vocalize the name. Christ doesn't need the name vocalized to repeat this part. He knows it already. He's omniscient. This is a deaf and mute as opposed to a blind and mute. And the father of the boy is de- desperate. He's brought his son to Christ. And the disciples powerless with this kind. And I should insert that Jesus God pretty much eradicated the demons from Israel. That's Matthew 12:38 through 30, 45. He went through Israel and got rid of them. He says they will come back at the time of the end of the age of the Gentiles. And before and after, before, uh, blah, blah, you will see in Matthew 12, 38 through 45, I have the sign of Jonah. And then I have the unclean spirit that seeks rest and finds none. Seeking rest, finding none. They're tied together. Sign of Jonah and demons' uh, possession. A mute demon possession in this case. So keep that in mind. It becomes very crucial as we progress through this subject. But for today, i got a desperate father. If you believe all all things are possible, what's the question? The father responds immediately. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That seems like a contradiction. Lord, I believe, but I I don't believe. What is it that he doesn't believe? What exactly didn't the father believe? the context provides the answer only the messiah can know the name only the messiah is the creator of the demon only the messiah can remove an unclean spirit from a mute and note quickly two other pieces of information the boy is dead he becomes as one dead many say he is dead they said he's dead why did they say he's dead because he's dead Is that a problem for the God of creation? All he did was lift him up and resurrect him. There I go again. I have the sign of Jonah. I have Lazarus. I have resurrection. It's all there together. It's not a a happenstance. And we begin to see the pattern, for lack of a better term. The sign of Jonah has within its parameters three days, three nights, resurrection, unclean spirit cast out of a mute. Before we leave Mark 9, 17 through 29 for today, pay attention to God asking a question. Omniscient God in authority, ask the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? What's he doing? Christ knows all things, John twenty-one seventeen. He can tell time. He's the creator of time. How long has this been happening? That's a time question. Why does he make a time question here? Omniscient God asks the demon his name. He named the demon. But again, this is Christ validating, for lack of a better term, the Jewish exorcism protocol. He's saying it's valid, it's real. I'm using it. I want it to be used. He's, the, he's doing this to announce that he's the son of David, Matthew twelve twenty three. That's why the multitude was amazed. Only Jesus Christ can separate a demon from a mute. And many demons had entered the man at Luke 8, 30 through 40. How many were in them? In any event, that's I, I have a number that I like. But how many demons do you think are in this guy? They say, yes, their name. They say Legion. Is that their name? No. That's a description. It's not their name. He just goes over it. Why does he go over it? Because the point wasn't to tell them their name. He doesn't need to tell them their name. To get them out. He's God. The point was to let the people listening know that he's following the system. He's identifying himself as the Son of David, the Messiah. In any event, the demons realize that Christ can send them into the abyss. They said, Don't send us into the abyss. What's the implications of that? They are admitting that Christ has the power to send them into the abyss. How strong what does that make him? The demons know that there is an abyss. They also know that they don't want to go into the abyss. These are demons that aren't in the abyss, and they don't want to go. And they know that there are demons in the abyss, and they know that demons go to the abyss when God sends them to the abyss. And they don't want to go. So don't send us into the abyss. We'll take the pigs. Finally, we don't have time, do we? No. No. 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23, we'll cover next week. What's that? There's a whole bunch going on there. Read it in your spare time. Ha. David, the shepherd king, plays music for Saul. Why does he do it? Familiar with the story? Plays music. Because the music that David... Saul's got a demon bothering him. And David plays the music. And by playing the music, the demon is, is, the pressure is put on the demon. And I know what you're all thinking. You're saying, David must not, he must be playing a banjo. <laughs> no, maybe, maybe a trumpet. Perhaps a bagpipe. Boy, that would work, wouldn't it? <laughs> I was glad you were coming here. I worked all day for that one joke. Couple of things really fast when you read it. There's no evidence the demon had indwelling. In other words, Saul was attacked from without, not from within. David played music. David is a type of Christ. He's the shepherd king. He plays music. The son of David, Christ, the son of David, the final king of Israel, the Messiah, will cause the demons to flee from Israel. You see this beautiful picture of Saul being tormented by demons, David playing music causing the demons to depart. Now you're in Matthew 12. Finally, everyone, finally, everyone's favorite word. John, the other disciple, he calls himself the other disciple. And again, some will say he's really Lazarus, but it's John who outraced Peter to the tomb. Peter went first into the tomb. John believed upon seeing the evidence of the resurrection. Peter didn't know. Go back to David and Saul. Add in Peter and John. You'll have a lot of information for next week.